Thanks for tuning in to the Hospital Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Gil Parat, and we're going to be talking about influenza, a very contagious respiratory illness. How contagious is it? Well, you usually can start infecting other people about a day before you feel symptoms. And then for about five to seven days after becoming sick, you are still very contagious. And influenza is not the common cold. Yes, you will have a cough and a sore throat, but you will also have fevers, which are often shaking chills. Very, very typical is to have severe myalgias, muscle and body aches, headaches, and the fatigue can be overwhelming. You just feel like you're dying. And depending on the year, sometimes GI symptoms such as vomiting and diarrhea will be part of influenza, though that is usually more common of a symptom in children rather than adults. The virus spreads very easily. It's in droplets, so when you sneeze or cough or even talk near somebody, these droplets can land on somebody else's mucous membranes, such as their mouth or their nose, and they become infected. Or you might be touching a surface and put flu virus on that surface, and then someone touches that surface and then touches their mouth or their eyes or their nose, giving the virus another entryway into that host, and they come down with influenza symptoms as well. Therefore, during flu season, you want to wash your hands, particularly if you are in a healthcare setting, and you don't want to touch your eyes, nose, or mouth before you have had the ability to wash those germs away. And you have to cover your mouth and nose at a very minimum if you have influenza, and really should be staying home if you are infected with the virus and avoid close contact with other people. There was an English actress named Penelope Keith, and she said, In my book, all manners are is thinking of somebody else. To that point, there is flu etiquette, and when you do cough or sneeze, you are supposed to cough into your upper sleeve or elbow and not your hands because you don't want your hands to then be touching other surfaces and spreading the influenza virus. If you really don't want the high fevers and body aches and severe fatigue and all the missing of work that influenza causes, the best thing to do is get vaccinated. Now, yes, it is true that the vaccine does not work every time for every person. The vaccine efficacy depends on the vaccine antigen that year and which virus goes around the community that year. Some years, there is a bad match and the vaccine is not very effective. Other years, it is very effective. When there is a good match between the vaccine and the virus, it is about 70 to 90% effective in preventing influenza. The thing about influenza is that it is a deadly virus 
for some people. Now, I was a physician during the 2009 H1N1 pandemic, and I saw people die of this virus a lot that winter. I still see people die almost every single year as a hospitalist from influenza, particularly when they get co-infected with staphylococcus or streptococcus or develop ARDS, adult respiratory distress syndrome, which puts you on the ventilator fighting for your life, as is the case with two patients currently in our ICU this 2013 Christmas season. We are just starting to see influenza here in Colorado within the past couple of weeks, so I think it's going to get a lot worse, as it often does as the influenza season progresses. Flashing back to 2009, when there was the H1N1 pandemic, the estimated number of deaths that year from respiratory and cardiovascular causes was 283,500 people worldwide. I have been a hospitalist since 2002, and that was definitely the hardest season of being a hospitalist for myself and my colleagues. Now, compare that to 1918, when there was an estimated 50 million deaths worldwide from the influenza pandemic that year. So we got tested in 2009, but did not get tested the way the world did back in 1918. So the worst is probably still yet to come, even in my lifetime, in regards to influenza pandemics. When you do become infected with influenza, it usually is about 24 hours before the symptoms start to have an onset, and those symptoms usually peak at about two to three days after you've been infected, and then last for about seven to 14 days, depending on the person and the year. That's if everything goes well. When things don't go well, such as a bacterial co-infection with influenza, you can get into a deadly situation. How many people get a co-infection with bacteria? I'm going to use the Journal of American Medical Association January 16th article in 2013 titled Bacteria Co-Infection with Influenza for my source on those numbers, and they say that bacterial co-infection complicates approximately 0.5% of all influenza cases in healthy young individuals. So about 1 in 200 healthy young individuals will get a bacterial co-infection. And at least 2.5% of cases in older individuals and those with predisposing conditions will get a bacterial co-infection. And those are the people that we see in the hospital. What specific bacteria do we typically see co-infected with the influenza virus? The most common isolates are Staphylococcus aureus, and that includes MRSA, Streptococcus pneumoniae, and Streptococcus pyogenes. That's not to say you won't see co-infections with Pseudomonas and Haemophilus, as well as other bacteria, but those are the three most common organisms that you're going to see with influenza co-infections. 
the reason you get bacterial co-infections with the influenza virus is that the virus infects the respiratory tract and impairs mucociliary clearance of bacteria from the lower respiratory tract and the virus itself actually kills the epithelial cells along the respiratory tract. When those cells die, the bacteria can then become invasive in the respiratory tract, setting up a pneumonia or a bacteremia in which the bacteria enters your bloodstream. We diagnose these patients because they're becoming more short of breath, more hypoxic, and they're starting to develop the signs and symptoms of sepsis and often septic shock. We also utilize our current armamentarium of microbiologic testing, of sputum, blood cultures, and urine antigen testing for streptococcus pneumoniae. But we need to empirically treat these patients with antibiotics based on the clinical symptoms before those microbiologic results are back. Early administration of antibiotics is key in pneumonia and sepsis, and the recommended empirical antibiotic choices really is the same based on whether it is a community-acquired pneumonia with the person that has influenza, or if it's a hospitalized patient or somebody in a healthcare setting, you use the usual empiric antibiotics for treatment of healthcare-associated pneumonias. As always, if our microbiologic testing shows that we have a specific bacterial pathogen, we can then target our antibiotics by changing the empirical regimen towards that specific bacteria once those results are available. The article on co-infection I referenced from Journal of American Medical Association on January 16, 2013, says that about one-third of critically ill patients with co-infection of bacteria and influenza will need vasopressors. And another important point is they say about 20% of patients will develop acute renal failure to the point that they require renal replacement therapy. These are sick patients, as we know, and that is why influenza can kill you. That now brings me back to the point about influenza vaccine. While it is not perfect and doesn't work for everybody every year, it is still the best available tool for prevention of influenza, including severe influenza illness that can result in co-infection with bacteria. Healthcare workers in particular really must get vaccinated. Now, is there ever a case where a healthcare worker has a true medical reason why they can't be vaccinated? If you listen to my previous podcast, on Guillain-Barre, we get into a little bit of that in regards to that specific disease. Though I got to say, as the chief medical officer of two pretty big hospitals currently, it is a very, very rare reason that someone should not get the influenza vaccine. In fact, my entire 
medical staff of 722 physicians got it this year. The overwhelming majority of those physicians will get it willingly because they understand its importance. There's always a very few minority of physicians that try and plead their case for why they don't want to get the influenza vaccine. And in that situation, I don't force them to get the vaccine. I just give them the options. And the options are either resign your privileges at the hospital or wear a mask at all times when you are in the hospital throughout the entire influenza season. The flu season lasts during the winter months, whether you are in the northern hemisphere or the southern hemisphere. It typically peaks in the January or February months. It can start as early as October and it can last as late as May. We do see cases of influenza throughout the year, meaning I diagnose influenza in the summer on occasion. And if you live in a tropical region of the world, influenza occurs throughout the year. That's the season, the whole year, because they don't have winter months. There's a Scottish comedian named Billy Connolly who says there are two seasons in Scotland, June and winter. So I don't know what months they give the flu shot in Scotland, but typically in the United States, we try and give it around October or November in anticipation that we will have people immunized by the peak months of the season. There are some people who are trying to predict when flu will hit as far as the peak, as well as when it will create a pandemic based on mathematical models and weather patterns. For example, when you look at the pandemics of 1918 as well as 2009 and the pandemics in between that, which were 1957 and 1968, when scientists look at it, they see that the pandemic was usually preceded by La Nina weather conditions, meaning lower temperatures on the surface of the Pacific Ocean. One of the things that happens when there is a La Nina effect is that the migratory patterns of birds is changed. And so the stopover points and therefore the interspecies mixing of migratory birds is different in those years. So it's a fascinating theory to follow whether or not this ends up being true, meaning whether La Nina actually has such a weather impact that it can influence and cause a pandemic, I think at best is a theory right now, but really interesting to think about. It probably is just a factor in causing pandemics, but maybe nevertheless an important factor. We know birds can be a major reservoir for influenza, and a reshuffling of the genome can occur potentially based on those weather pattern changes. The topic of influenza is truly fascinating, both in terms of impact and the actual science in regards to the virus. I am just starting to scratch the surface of many things we can talk about that are fascinating about influenza, and I will end part one now. Those interested in the current antiviral treatments, 
the genetics of the virus and other characteristics of influenza that I find riveting can join me in the next podcast. You've been listening to Hospital Medicine with your host, Dr. Gil Perrott.